So we've been talking about how our words can make a real difference in someone's life, even change the trajectory of someone's life, and how God partners with us and uses us in the lives of the people we care for, even helping us to get in this place because of others' words of encouragement. But I wonder if we realize what's at stake. I want you to look at this image of a red dot and a black line. That red dot is our life. And the black line is eternity, which goes on infinitely in both directions. Or maybe it goes in lots of different directions, multidimensional. But this red dot, which for most of us, this is about 78 years. This is not a prediction, that's statistics. But in 78 years, it's just a tiny blip on the line of eternity. Yet think of how often we live just for the dot. We don't even think about the line. I mean, our culture tells us to live for today. YOLO, is that still a thing? <laughs> yeah. You only live once. But when we focus on the dot, we miss out on the way that we can make an impact for all of eternity. Are you living for just right now, the short term, the life that ends? Are you living for the line, the long term, for the life that's eternal? Now, when I was a kid, I was afraid of death. And I remember being afraid I wouldn't make it into my teens and then I was afraid I wouldn't make it to the year 2000. The year 2000. I mean, that sounded like so far away. And it was really just, it wasn't so much a fear of what's to come, but just a fear that I would miss out on what this life has to offer. But really, after moving here in my 30s and, and learning from John Burke in this book, Imagine Heaven, and the series we did, Imagine Heaven, several years ago, it, it really opened my eyes to eternity. And, and along with these guys that do something called the Bible Project, really started to help me see the scriptures differently. See, the Bible is a story about God's relationship with us. The Bible is designed to point us towards a relationship with him. And you see at the very beginning that God was with humanity in the garden, the garden of Eden. And then even as humanity and God were separated by the choices of humanity, God continued to pursue us. And his presence was there at the tabernacle and there at the temple and there ultimately in the person of Jesus. And then remarkably, mysteriously, miraculously, God's presence is actually still on planet earth through those of us who follow him. See, when you and I say yes to following Jesus, his spirit comes to live within us. And that's why we're to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, everywhere we go, we take God's presence with us. We bring a glimpse of heaven with us everywhere we go. We are called the body of Christ. And then at the end of the scriptures, we see a new heaven and new earth. God and humanity together at peace once more. And so the beginning to the end is a story of God in pursuit of humanity. And now I grew up with a different kind of understanding. I thought of the Bible as a book about heaven and hell and how you can earn your way to one and how to avoid the other at all costs. 
But the story of the Bible is more about heaven and earth, the place where God dwells and humans live, and how God's design is for us to all be together in this new heaven and new earth. It's a story of a loving God who pursues us. Last year, I was having a conversation with a young mom, and her husband had just come to faith, and she was really intrigued by this whole possibility that there is a life after this life, that this is not all there is, that there is a point in history where God came and walked among us and ultimately gave his life for us, but he rose from the dead. She said to me, if this is true, nothing else is even remotely as important. Now, what was she saying? She was acknowledging that our life comes and goes, but what is done in this life impacts all of eternity. If this is true, a few months later, after really taking those doubts and searching for God in the midst of them, she came to faith, now has a relationship with God. So there are three things that are really worth investing in, things that last eternally. Those three things are God, his promises, which he says will never pass away or change, and people. That's what goes with us after this life. And so no matter your background, no matter your career, you and I, we can live for the line. We can live for the eternal. This past week, I had a chance to visit with John Lockhart. He was a kind of well-known in Austin, part of a band called Suede, a guitarist who's played at Gateway for years, even got connected to God again through Gateway. You can see him on the countdown video at about the 10-second mark. But sadly, this last year has been really difficult as he was diagnosed with cancer. And so we went to visit a couple of us and to pray with him as he's on hospice for pain in order to pain management. But in the midst of that, as we came over to pray, to encourage him, we found ourselves being encouraged. And I've heard that from others, that, that people coming over to encourage him leave more encouraged because he has just such a beautiful view of life and even his living on the line. His message to us was, God has told me we're going to be okay. That we can trust him with our fears and with our, the people we care about the most, with our futures. That regardless of what's to come, we're going to be okay. And that for him, he feels like God is doing something significant among us in this particular year. And he's eager to be here for that. But he has this peace regardless of what's to come because he's already living on the line. See, it reminds me of what Paul wrote when facing death in a prison in Rome. Writing to the Philippians, he writes, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. See, living for the line is a win-win, no-lose situation. If you follow Jesus, you don't have to change anything about your career. Just start changing your perspective to make an eternal difference. Change your view of what you're living for. Rather than getting stuck in the dot, start to view life as part of the line. Paul continues later in Philippians, 
I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So if you've said yes to Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. Our destiny is on the line. That's what we're to live our life for, with a perspective that's so different than the rest of the world. And so we're in the midst of this citywide conversation. We've started in January talking about what's after life. And you've seen the billboards perhaps as you've driven around town, what's after ATX.org. And if you go to that website, it, it'll ask the question, are you, are you open to the possibilities? And so we've given you these books and, and you've been passing them out and, and you've been sharing these videos online and What's really remarkable is how open people are to this conversation. And at Easter, we're going to dive in more to what is the next life really like. And with interviews from people who were clinically dead, who experienced a glimpse of the life to come and have come back to tell us all about it. Some of them doctors and scientists who were skeptical of life after death, but now they've experienced it. Now they have faith. So I want you to invite people and to, to be excited as that approaches, because what's happening in the scriptures is a message that God loves us and pursues us, and we can have a relationship with him. And that relationship cost us giving up our life, surrendering our life, but it was purchased by what Jesus was willing to do for us. And when we say yes, we're forgiven. We're now part of a new family. We're adopted into his family. We're new citizens of a new kingdom. And all are invited. Have you done that in your own life? Have you acknowledged that what Jesus did on the cross, you need to count for your life? That you need his forgiveness. You need his leadership. If you've ever at some point in your life done that, made that decision, then you are part of this forever family. You have a relationship with God. But we live on a dot. And so as a result, we can get distracted, can't we? We can wander off from the line of what God wants us to see, from the purpose he has for us. See, our purpose is to love God and to love people. And through us, God loves those around us. Notice how Jesus addressed this in Matthew 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. See, the problem is not that there aren't enough people who are hurting or isolated or addicted or struggling or suicidal or wondering if their lives matter at all. The dilemma is there's not enough people to tell them there's hope. And so we're invited to be part of praying that, that more workers would rise up to help others find what we found. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to be one of those workers, undercover, 
messengers, wherever you may work, in whatever neighborhood you might live. Not just praying that God would raise up others, but being those people to those around you. And we try to make it easy with these books. And so many of you have shared some stories. Here's one of my favorite I've heard of late. After the message we talked on following those promptings, a guy named Greg, who's part of Gateway, was, was praying that morning. And as he was praying, the thought of Dan came to his mind. Dan is this big, burly, intimidating guy with whom he works. And he had a specific conversation with Dan at one point. And Dan said, I don't want to have anything to do with God because I don't think he wants to have anything to do with me because of all I've done. And so that morning, Dan comes to his mind. And Greg's initial thought is, I don't want Dan to come to my mind. I want to think about somebody else. And so he considers continuing to pray, God, put someone else in my head. But he knew that he was supposed to give a book, an encouragement to Dan. So he sees him later in the day, and he doesn't do it. A week goes by. He's got that book with him at work every day, and he just can't muster the courage. He was scared about how he might respond. And so finally, he musters up the courage with God's help, and he says to Dan, hey, the other morning at about 5.30, I was making coffee, and I was just praying, and you came to my mind. And I felt like I was supposed to give you this book to tell you that, you know how you think God doesn't want to have anything to do with you? Well, he actually does. And Dan looked at him for a second. He looked at the book, and then he thanked him and hugged him. And Greg was shocked. He did not expect that response. And he told him, this means so much to me. So you don't know what your words might mean to those around you. I I shared with you last week how Ricky said to his physical therapist, hey, I know you're an open-minded person, so I wanted to give you this book. Such a great way to say it. What is his PT going to say? No, I'm not. I'm actually quite closed-minded, you know? (laughs) But people are very open to these conversations. See, all of us secretly wonder what happens after the dot. Is this really all there is? A life filled with stress and anxiety and fear and struggle? Or is there hope, a bigger perspective, a love that overcomes all of this and makes it meaningful? So what what holds us back from stepping out to loving people with serving them with our actions and even with our words. Well, one of our leaders said to John Burke, I don't want to pass out books because I don't want to be seen as like a Jehovah's Witness. And John said to him, well, how do you think I feel? I wrote the book. (laughs) Hey, I've got this great book I wrote for you, (laughs) right? See, he even describes how he's still wrestling with what will people think of me when I try to give them this. See, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and trusting that he will guide us who to love, who to serve, who to give a gift to. See, now on the dot, some people might scoff or ridicule or even persecute. Certainly in other parts of the world, people are incredibly persecuted because of their faith. But it's important to understand Like our pastor in Los Angeles, Erwin McManus, used to say, we're not trying to convert anyone. 
We're just trying to help anyone who's spiritually searching and they're all around us. See, just keep your eyes open to see who God might guide. We've been looking in this series at moments when Jesus had conversations and and it moved someone forward. And today we're going to look at Pilate, Pontius Pilate. You, You probably recognize the name. He's one of the most famous governors to ever live. He was a Roman governor 2,000 years ago, and he's infamous because of this particular conversation. Think about it for a moment. I mean, how many other governors do you know in history? Do you even know the name of our governor right now? But we know the name of Pontius Pilate because of what happens in the life of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. Let's pick up in John 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They objected, but we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. See, they said, we have no right to execute anyone. Uh, This is one of those prophecies fulfilled in the scriptures. And I know there are many people in this room, it was through the fulfillment of prophecies, seeing how verifiable historical moments were predicted years before in the Hebrew scriptures. See, the Jewish leaders wanted to execute Jesus because he was claiming to be the Messiah, equal with God the promised one, and he would heal people as proof. So the Jewish nation was talking about him, and he would say things about the religious leaders. As we talked about last week, he would say some really hard things because those were some of the most hard-hearted people. It was, in many ways, the most loving thing he could do because they weren't listening otherwise. Listen to what he said at one point in Matthew 23, talking about these religious leaders the Pharisees. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. So what do you really feel about the Pharisees, Jesus? Well, if you like Jesus' rant, you can keep going. Read the whole chapter. There's a lot more there. But see, he was really motivated by love to, to rebuke them harshly in hopes that they might turn but also because they were standing in the way of people finding the God who loves them. But even the way they went about crucifying him proved Jesus was God revealed in human flesh. Nearly 2,000 years before Jesus, Jacob declared this prophecy about his son Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. See, for 2,000 years, the Jewish people saw this as a a prophecy about the Messiah, that he would come from the line of Judah, 
Which, by the way, whenever you read the Bible and you see all these genealogies, it might be boring to us. But for others, it was showing how Jesus was a fulfillment of what they'd been hoping for for so long. And the Messiah would have the authority over all nations and even the obedience of the nations, people from every people group saying yes to following Jesus. See, Jesus was from the line of Judah. And the Messiah came with authority before that authority was taken away from the Jewish people. See, what happened in AD 7, the year 7, Rome was tired of the Jewish uprising, so they took authority from them. They were no longer in charge of even capital punishment. And so they wrote in their own book called the Talmud, Woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken from Judah, and the Messiah has not appeared. See, they expected the Messiah to appear while they had this authority, but now the authority was gone in year seven. But little did they know the Messiah was already there. He was growing up among them, soon to begin teaching with authority and bringing healing and ultimately giving his life. In fact, in the midst of these miracles, many of the religious leaders couldn't explain away his miracles. People had seen him do remarkable things, and so they referred to it as sorcery, demonic sorcery. Even in their own book, the Talmud, they write, on the eve of Passover, they hung Jesus of Nazareth for sorcery and leading Israel astray. The Talmud is not part of the Bible. It is written outside of the Bible, pointing towards their view of who the Messiah would be, the one that comes while we have this authority. And they referred to Jesus as having sorcery because they didn't like the fact that he was claiming to be God, that he was the Messiah. But listen to what Psalm 2 said hundreds of years before. Why do the nations conspire? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, the anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And so then on this day, when this conversation takes place with Pilate, we see just as prophesied in Psalm 2 that the rulers had come together, Caiaphas, King Herod, and Pilate, working together to crucify God's son, the Messiah, who paid his life to adopt people, his inheritance from all nations. Now, it's important to interject this here because there was an evil lie that began to spread in the Middle Ages. It, there was a, a sense of anti-Semitism, blaming the Jewish people for the death of Jesus. And then others have said, well, it wasn't just their fault. It was the Romans' fault. And that's why the Roman Empire is gone. See, here's the problem with that. Is that the story of the scriptures tell us Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross. And if it wasn't that person yelling for his death, it would have been that person. It's not a people group that's to blame. See, Jesus did this for all people groups. He willingly sacrificed his life because of the sins of all of humanity. See, God foretold what he was doing in history out of love for all people that we might trust these words. 
John 18, let's continue. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus, the king of all kings, showing that his kingdom is not of this world. See, that's why those of us who follow Jesus, we don't fight for power or control like the kingdoms of this world do. But we fight evil with love. We fight for our enemies. We fight for our marriages. We fight for people to be reconciled to God. We fight for people to be reconciled to each other. See, evil tries to divide us from each other. Evil tries to divide us and separate us from God. Evil is going to threaten and intimidate and try to bully you into not loving and serving and even telling those around you about God's love for them. And Jesus promised us this. Listen to what he says. Since I, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. Well, that's great news. But don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. See, when we live for the dot, we get caught up in the ways of this world. But when we live for the line, we see things from a different perspective. And each of us has to wrestle with that question. Pilate asked, what is truth? What do you see truth as in your life? Who do you see truth as? Jesus came saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What have you decided about him? And how has it affected how you live your life? Well, if you know the rest of the story, in order to try to get out of this, because he saw him as an innocent man, he, he thought he would offer up someone else, a, a worse criminal, instead of this innocent man. And the crowd chanted, they wanted Jesus to be crucified. And about that same time, his wife has a dream. In that dream, she's warned that Jesus is innocent and that Pilate should have nothing to do with this situation. But Pilate wouldn't listen, knowing it. It was expedient. It was important for his career to give the crowd what they wanted. He went along with them, handing Jesus over to be crucified. Origen, one of the early church historians, tells us that Claudia became a follower of Jesus. It started with that dream, but turned into a genuine relationship with God. At least at this point in his life, Pilate didn't care about God. He cared more about what people around him were saying, which reminds us we can't decide for someone and we don't know who's going to be receptive and who won't. All we can do is tell people and entrust them to God. See, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 
For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. See, you and I are invited into this adventure with God to make a difference in the lives of those around us. It's not, it's not needing to be awkward or forced, but organic and relational, responding to God's guidance along the way. And imagine one day the ripple effect of all the changed lives in eternity because you and I were willing to just follow that prompting, to do an act of kindness, to serve, to love, to pray for, even to have a conversation.